Hi, this is Eric Corey Freed. And Eve Blossom. And this is Care by Design. Today's interview is with Monique Woodard. Monique is a venture capital investor and invests in the future of technology that is being driven by major demographic trends like the shifts in what is majority-minority, an increase in the spending power of women, and an aging baby boomer population. Monique shares with us today on Care by Design about this moment during the first wave of COVID-19 and the recent Black Lives Matter protests, as well as about the many layers of her fund cake. Monique, it is great to have you on Care by Design. And before we dig in, I wanted to share how wonderful you were during the first weeks of sheltering in place here in San Francisco. When I was presumptive COVID, you were so kind to bring me groceries. <laughs> I would absolutely do that a thousand times over for a friend. So I was happy to do it. Oh, thank you so much. You made all the difference. <laughs> Monique, wanted to talk to you today about what you're seeing and experiencing um, during this first wave of COVID-19 and this amazing time during the Black Lives Matter protests. Yeah, so when COVID initially happened and we all went under shelter in place, I think initially um, founders were certainly scrambling to sort of understand where their businesses would stand um, in this new, this new, what was going to be the new normal for, you know, a little while at least. Um, a lot of founders were, you know, trying to reduce their burn rate, trying to apply for PPP loans, um, and really sort of just scrambling to make sure that they could be, um, they could be, uh, continue to be strong during, during this time. And then we, and then a lot of VCs started to pull back on investing. I definitely know of some deals that fell apart, you know, um, uh, during shelter in place and they started to be a lot more cautious um, in, in making those investments and started to really double down on their existing portfolios and really just to make sure that the existing um, investments they had already made were going to be, were going to be safe. And then, and then, you know, fast forward, we all started to get very comfortable in shelter in place and, you know, we just accepted it as, as what, what it was. And then we have, um, you know, the, the riots and protests uh, around racial discrimination and police violence. And um, that has created an entirely new set of, of challenges, but new uh, sort of renewed interest in supporting black entrepreneurs, in supporting, um, you know, black led organizations, um, nonprofits, um, and really, kind of forcing people to admit that they probably haven't done a great job of, of supporting um, Black people in business or Black people in general. And so you saw a lot of funds come out with these Black Lives Matter statements. And now I think we're at a point where a lot of people are trying to figure out, well, great, you said Black Lives Matter. What does that mean? Where, where are you putting the activity that goes behind the words? Where are you putting that to work? Um, and so it's been a time, it's been a really tumultuous time, um, but I think it's a time of, 
you know, it's the beginnings of change. I think so too. It's, it's just so exciting to see. Um, so you and I have talked many times about how there needs to be a real shift of who sits at the table as partners at VC funds and how difficult it is to make that shift and, and how one aspect of it is because of wealth versus income and how to change the equation of representation of VC partners as black, female, Hispanic, or other minority partners. So for example, black Americans are significantly less likely to have wealth and savings. And for black Americans, household wealth has been changed, hasn't changed uh, in three decades. Mm -hmm. Wealth is traditionally accumulated through home ownership, stocks, high wages, or other means. But black Americans do not have easy access to these and to build wealth over generations. So specifically, I wanted to talk to you about how it takes time to start a VC fund. Even if a person has the skills to start a fund, they still may not have the funds to support themselves for the year or more it takes to close the fund. And so how do right. we change the representation of VC partners in this scenario? And you and I have discussed it like it would be great if there was a system that could support these skilled and experienced women, Blacks, Hispanics, and other minorities during their early first fund fundraising, you know, support financially, as well as early, uh, easier strategic access to LPs with partnerships for strengthening reputation and trust. So I wanted mm -hmm. to talk to you further about that. Yeah, so I think, you know, if you look around the industry, you'll notice that there are very few um, black VCs at large established funds, right? Sequoia has no black partners. You know, you can go on and on to the many funds who have no black partners. Um, and it's, it can be hard to diversify a partnership because you're only hiring, you're generally hiring, you know, a couple, depending on the fund size, a couple of partners every time you go out and raise a, a new fund. Um, and so that one is a very is a very long time and you it's hard to grow the already existing bench of investors and so what what you what i've seen is a lot of like black senior investing professionals going out and saying we're just not going to wait around for someone to choose us right and we're going to go create our own funds and that is that's certainly a strategy and a lot of us have done it out of necessity, um, but it's also really hard. Mm -hmm. It's really hard if you don't come from generational wealth, right? Um, and often, you know, so you talked about the, the many ways that people create wealth in general, but let's think about how we create wealth in, in, within the tech industry and within Silicon Valley. You create wealth when you are early at a company um, as an employee or as a founder, and then you have a liquidity event and then you, you're liquid enough to go off and like maybe you angel invest or maybe you, you become a VC and you, you have enough um, personal capital to be able to do that. So venture capital has, and you know, the numbers of black people early at companies or founding companies that get venture backing and then have some sort of exit or liquidity event are extremely, extremely low. And that's because you know we we don't get hired at these companies, um, and so you know you put all that together, and it becomes really difficult for a black person within even with investing experience to go off and start their own funds because they just don't have the personal capital to do it. And um, venture capital is often a rich man's game, 
And I say that it's a rich white man's game, actually, <laughs> because that's who has the money to be able to forego a salary while paying lawyers to set up the fund, while flying to the East Coast or you know the middle of the country to meet with LPs, limited partners, who are the people who invest in your fund, um, and you know leveraging an existing network of wealthy and high net worth individuals who you've known over years who can be the first money into a fund. And so you, you take all of that and you know, the wall is often stacked against you as, as a black um, person, a black investor who you know, wants to go out and, and start a fund. Um, and so I do think there is an opportunity there to like really think about that as a trigger point to diversifying the, the venture capital and investor class. Because if you can figure out ways to help women, um, black women in particular, um, and other black and, black and Latinx investors, you know, have, have enough runway to actually start a fund, then you can start to see some more, some additional diversity in, in the venture capital class. Yeah, and on that note, I'd love for you to share kind of what you're doing with your fund, with Cake. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting a fund called Cake Ventures, and um, Cake is really all about um, the layers of demographic change that I see as changing technology. So, I mean, you talk to a lot of investors, and they will talk to you about the big technology changes that are happening, and what a lot of them are failing to see is that there are equally big demographic changes that are happening. And those demographic changes should really change the way that we are investing in, in technology and tech-enabled companies. And so for me, the three big layers of demographic change are the 10,000 baby boomers turning 65 every single day, this massive aging market that has previously gone under, certainly gone underinvested, and in a lot of ways has gone under-innovated. Now we're starting to see a lot more activity around this aging space with really smart, innovative founders starting companies to address everything from um, aging in place to uh, menopause in the healthcare space um, to uh, retirement funds and things like that. So um, that's the first layer of the cake. The second layer of the cake is companies that can get to billion dollar outcomes based on the economic activity of women. So women, women in an almost entirely female user base has driven companies like Glossier, Rent the Runway, The Real Real to unicorn status. And um, now we're going to start to see that outside of consumer retail and in categories like FinTech, a company like Elvest could be one of those that's on, on its way to potentially being a unicorn. Um, digital health. Um, modern fertility is certainly one that's like on its way. Carrot fertility as well, Tila, um, and then future of work with a company like Chief. So these are all categories um, and companies where uh, an almost entirely female user base will drive that company to success. Um, and then finally, the third layer of the cake is um, the rise of a new majority where people of color, but as a broad group, but primarily Asian, Latin, Latinx, and African-American will become the majority in the United States. And if you're building a global company and looking globally, people of color right, are already the, the global majority. Um, and so 
that's where a lot of my early investments like Blavity, which is a media platform for black millennials or Minted Cosmetics, a beauty brand for women of color or Encantos, a bilingual learning media company. Um, that's where the, a lot of those companies sit. And you know, I think that a lot of the opportunity is in the consumer space, but not just consumer retail or direct to consumer, but also things like fintech and financial services. So how do these groups save and spend money differently? Um, uh, the future of work, again, not only do they go out into the world and, and consume, they also show up in the workplace. And so what are those opportunities to take, um, you know, a very active uh, internet user base and understand that the, the products and the technology platforms that they're going to be using. Great. Um, yeah, you know, in, um, in relation to what you were talking about with healthcare, um, femtech, as they call it, with women's healthcare, um, as well as in aging, um, in relation to women investors and similar underrepresentation as VC partners, we have seen an uptick in the number of women partners in the last year or two, but still it's under, what, isn't it under around 10%, I, I think still? Um, yeah, it, it's still not nearly enough. <laughs> exactly. One example I wanna discuss that, um, that is part of your work that you've just uh, talked about as well as my work in healthcare and femtech um, and in also longevity. So females are higher average lifespans and life expectancies than men. Women influence uh, up to, I think, like $15 trillion in the US, spending and often consider how to promote better health, longer life, and make up like, I think, 80% eight, of all healthcare decisions for themselves and their families. Women are also most likely to do care planning and have for decades. And female investors are well positioned in regards to expertise, market knowledge for investments in these specialty areas related to women's health services and products. I'd love to talk to you about how we, you and I have talked about this before, how we believe that women should be the investors who then invest in the founders who are women in these services and products and how that alignment all along, uh, we experience the gaps in the market. We experience and understand how it affects our lives. Definitely. Um, you know, there, there is definitely a thesis around, um, around care. Um, and it's one that, you know, folks at Pivotal Ventures and, you know, Techstars Longevity definitely think about this a lot, that women are responsible for care. And that can be care um, at the early, early in life, like child care, but that's also care for an aging parent or aging parents. Um, and uh, if we can make care more equitable and, you know, use technology to make it easier for women to, to provide care, and to manage care, then um, we can improve the lives of, of women. And so I think there's a huge opportunity to, to focus on, on a lot of those platforms. And also, a lot of times, the professional caregivers are overwhelmingly women. And, you know, professional caregivers and, you know, nurses and, and um, you know, those sorts of, of professional care careers are uh, underpaid, and have a huge amount of turnover and are often black and brown women. And so you really have an opportunity at many different, in many different areas to impact the lives of women. So you're impacting the lives 
of the woman professional caregiver, you're impacting the lives of the woman uh, family caregiver. And, you know, often I think a lot of women investors and women founders are going to be the ones working on these problems together. So I think that, you know, if you believe that this is a big market, and, and I do believe that it is a massive market, um, especially as you know, the biggest generation of baby boomers continues to get older and continues to need to lean on, um, on the, the care system, um, that you should really be thinking about who has the best lens into um, these challenge, these probably solving these big problems, often female founders. And you should be thinking about who can be the best guide and the best investor in those, in those problems. And that's often a female, um, you know, VC. And so I think, you know, I think if you're ignoring the, the gender lens around that, you're, you're not really understanding the market very well. I found that in the beginning of the sheltering in place that I heard from a lot of VCs and private equity investors that they could easily see themselves investing virtually, you know, through the process if they had already met the team or they have met the founders. Yeah, that was in March. But what I'm hearing now come, you know, May or June, <laughs> maybe it was June, that um, people are just now opening up to the idea of actually maybe investing in people they haven't met before. And I had yeah. been talking to um, these investors um, and, and putting a workflow together. This is what I've been working on for the last 90 days. It's putting a workflow together to show that you could easily do it virtually. And I'm so excited to see now that a lot of these investors are rising to that, uh, to that challenge and to that place. Uh, have you seen the same? Definitely, I think investors have to. I, I believe that initially investors were a little um, gun shy around you know, creating these new relationships over Zoom and you know, fully executing an entire you know, meet an entrepreneur only virtually to writing a check, um, they were a little, you know, a, a little less uh, apt to do that early in shelter in place. And I think as we've just come to the realization that this is going to be a long lasting situation, they've had to, to get themselves together and figure out ways to do that and ways to get to a level of comfortability with founders. And I think that does a few things, but I think the most, the thing that I'm most excited about is how geography doesn't really matter as much anymore. And I hope that continues to hold true, right? So previously you wouldn't see a Silicon Valley investor investing in a lot of startups that maybe started and were based in Atlanta. But I think like, you know, as we continue to get more and more comfortable with making those deals and, and making bigger deals, because, you know, maybe the pre-seed investors and some of the seed investors were, were got to a level of comfortability earlier. But I think even the, the Series A and B and C investors are going to start to get to a point where they are doing these deals without having met a founder face-to-face -face and maybe not even being in the same geography. And so I think that is a win for a lot of ecosystems where there is less venture capital, um, which is basically every ecosystem other than <laughs> Silicon Valley. Um, so it's it's a win for ecosystems like you know Raleigh Durham or Atlanta or New Orleans or Albuquerque. It's it's a win for a lot of those places. 
I'd love to talk you to talk a little bit about how you think um, you're structuring your fund a little differently with care by design at its core. So when I decided to, um, so I used to be an investor at 500 startups and um, I've been a scout at Lightspeed. And so initially I was thinking, you know, there were certain people who thought I should go to another big name fund and do what I do there. And I was really thinking about, you know, this thesis and the layers of the cake and sort of imagining whether I thought it could live inside a, another well-established, probably Silicon Valley, Sand Hill Road fund. And I just didn't think it could. I didn't think it could wedge itself into a fund that already had a very specific point of view and a, and a thesis of its own. And two, I also didn't feel like my desire to set to create an entire new culture around venture capital and around investing could go into an existing fund that already has its own culture and change that culture in even a couple of years. So I just didn't really feel that it could be, I didn't feel anything other than that it needed to be its own independent platform. And, um, you know, I really think about a fund as a financial vehicle, but I think of Cake Ventures as so much more than a financial vehicle, right? It's, it's changing culture. It's changing, um, you know, the future of the products that, that end up in the world and who those products are for. And it's also changing um, the, who the founders are that we get to back and trust and believe in and ultimately be a part of their success. So it's a, it's a much bigger it's a much bigger lift than if I had gone to another firm. But ultimately, I think that that's what's needed in order to, to change the industry. And I just also think we need more black women GPs who are you know, able to raise and grow sizable funds and scale them over time. In my work with communities, anytime that I bring up diversity, equity, or inclusion in any order, but DE yeah. or I, I, I'm now at the point where I can, I can predict who's going to, who's going to react in a negative way and, and resist talking about it. Yeah. Do you have any advice for people listening of how to, how to engage them in these conversations in a way that, so that way it's okay to be uncomfortable? That, you know, uh, it's, it's one of the things that I do in my um, facilitating is I, I tell them it's okay to get outside of your comfort zone. It's okay to talk about these things. Let's talk about them. Do you, you know, you're dealing with investors, entrepreneurs. How do you talk about this to them? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's helping people understand that there are going to be these really uncomfortable conversations where, you know, they may get faced with their own biases, right? And they may suddenly realize that they've been acting, behaving in a way that they think is completely antithetical to their core values, right? And, and I think, you know, uncovering and, and helping people through those realizations is perfectly fine. Um, and I think people have to get really comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, but the thing that I like to tell investors, because investors, the thing that uh, investors understand 
is money and risk, right? And my belief is that if we are not tackling the big, hairy DNI, DEI challenges um, that sort of have bred themselves through corporations of all, of all sizes, from startups to big corp, um, that those are the true failure points, potential failure points. If you look at, you know, if you look at the reasons that people like Travis at Uber ended up not being at Uber, like that is a DEI issue. And often those issues are going to continue to be the issues that tank otherwise successful businesses. And so if you are investing in either funds or if you are a fund manager investing in companies, and if you can't help your, your founders through these DEI issues and challenges, um, and that's everything from sexual harassment to um, pay equity to uh, LGBTQ issues, um, if you're not able to help them through any, all of those problems and challenges, you are putting your companies and your LPs money at risk. And so you have to really get it together. I don't even like, just get it together. Because otherwise, you know, you're gonna have a whole bunch of like dead unicorns on your hands. I've seen enough venture capitalists discuss potential deals and prospective deals to know that obviously there's a framework for what they're looking for. But I've also seen that a lot of VCs, no offense, no, no offense to you as a VC, but we'll go where the wind blows. Yeah. 2005, everybody wanted, as long as it had clean tech in the title, they were happy. Yeah. How do you, how do you either overcome that and not just get distracted by the way the, the herd is going? Um, and, and how do you, how do you kind of stay focused on a, on a larger, a larger idea of what you want to invest and encourage? Yeah, I think it's easy for me to not get distracted because I have a very specific thesis. I think if I was a more generalist investor who, you know, I dabble a little bit in some consumer and sometimes I dabble in some, some SaaS, you know, I think it would be, it would be a lot more difficult to, um, for me to figure out, you know, what I want to do this week, right? Um, and that would change drastically from, from point in time to point in time. But having a clear thesis helps me be really disciplined around the types of companies that I want to invest in. I also think, you know, personally, as a, as a person, I don't get a lot of FOMO. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't really get FOMO. I, you know, there are certainly companies that I've passed on that thankfully have gone on to do well. And I feel incredibly happy that they, that they have, but I, I don't feel that I missed something or that I now want to be in that company and I'm willing to pay an exorbitant price for being in it. Right. I don't, I don't necessarily get FOMO in that way. Well, even with your focus, how has what you've, what you would normally look for, how, how has that changed just in the last year, just in 2020, given all the yeah. chaos that's occurring? Um, it hasn't changed that much. I, I think what has changed 
is, you know, I'm looking for companies to be a lot more resilient and to, to show that, you know, they can not just be f fast growth companies, but can be, uh, you know, can be camels, right? Can like gather resources and then that those resources can potentially take them um, on a very long journey, right? So that they're not just uh, spending money being sort of this leaky bucket that continuously spends money um, and continuously raises money in order to keep doing that. Um, so I, I, I think that's the biggest trigger point is looking at companies and figuring out how can they be the most resilient with the resources that they have at hand and with the understanding that 2020 is only half over and it's been a firestorm. And, you know, as I told a founder, you know, a few days ago, you know, you should expect any and everything to happen on the tail end of 2020. Um, and so if that means you need to raise a little bit more money than you expect it to and, and keep it for a little bit longer, then, then you need to go do that. But um, I think the, the not knowing what to expect um, has made me, you know, look at founders and look at founding teams a little bit different, differently and you know, make some determinations around whether they're going to be those companies that can, can sort of travel for a very long time with, um, with the resources that they're being given. I invest early, I invest at pre-seed and, and seed. And uh, there are certainly, at pre-seed and seed, the data is so thin that you have to be investing in the person and the team and their ability to execute. Um, and the thing that they may be executing on today might not be the thing that they're going to be executing on in six months. And so you just have to believe that these are smart people and that they are sort of in search of a market opportunity and they've identified something that is working and that you want to be on that journey with them. Um, so there are definitely people who, you know, I've said, you know, I don't know that this works the way you're telling me it works. Um, but I do believe that you're going to figure out a path to something. <laughs> right. I mostly work in the sustainability world and most of the emphasis for, for what we work on is, a, is what is the immediate return on investment? What is the immediate ROI? Yeah. And if I, if I have one, it's an easy conversation. If I don't have one, if there are things that are a little more ethereal, how do you deal with things that don't have an immediate ROI or, or is, that, is that not even discussed in the, in the VC world? There is no such thing as immediate ROI in seed investing. So um, seed investing by its nature is about uh, patience, right? And you know, knowing that a company, especially if you invest in a company at pre-seed, might take a couple of years to get into its true groove and that you are going to have to be very patient. I mean, everyone says that venture is not about patient capital and, you know, it, it's truly not. It really, you are really looking for, you know, that very small percentage of like rocket ship companies. But pre-seed investing is the most patient capital of venture capital. And so, um, you know, there is the ability to believe and to support over a relatively long period of time and to see that come to fruition, you know, in year three, maybe.
So Monique, it has been really wonderful to have you today on Care by Design. And we would love to have you again in the future to check in on the exciting and timely journey you are embarking on. Thanks for having me. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast of Care by Design with Eric Corey Freed and me, Eve Blossom, as your hosts. We look forward to our next interview this upcoming Tuesday. Visit us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Care by Design Pod. And there you can see additional show notes of each of our podcast interviews and additional posts on new podcast interviews. So tune in this Tuesday for our next Care by Design podcast. Hear us then.